Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. As always, dad is an energy and not a gender. Welcome to episode 30, babe. Whoa. That's, that's uh, almost as old as we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Catch it up quick. Yeah. Next week. Hit that big 3-1. Wait, is that how old we are? We're over 32. We're, we're 32? Yeah. Shoot. <laughs> Shoot, I didn't realize. <laughs> <laughs> okay, two more weeks and then we'll. Uh, we'll I be just felt like that guy for, on the ship in Interstellar. You've been gone for so long. I have two two things to quickly mention. One's pretty cool. Okay. Uh, we watched Clerks one and two last week, mm-hmm. and then we posted a little thingy about oh, Clerks yes. three. Spoiler, spoiler alert! We're going to talk about Clerks three, um, and. That Kevin Smith, the official Instagram of director, writer, rad dad, Kevin Smith, gave it a little heart. Hell yeah. Which is pretty cool. I feel so seen. I really like him. Like, I just like really like him as a person. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that I don't know him, <laughs> yeah. but I feel a connection with him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And now we are one step closer to having him be our, our friend. Oh, oh. <laughs> Oh, yes, our dad. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, so that's so cool. exciting. So cool. I love when famous people <laughs> engage with us in some manner, even if it's not directly. It just fills my heart with happiness and joy. Kevin Smith loves Edmonton. It's only a matter of time until... He's he, our dad. Yeah, until he's our dad. Uh, second thing, mm-hmm. had some great responses to the plethora of questions we asked last week. Yeah. But one of the things that we had asked about was the um, the whole reserving seats for yourself in a non-reserved movie theater right. by just putting something on the seats and not even your personal belongings, but pieces of paper yeah. and then effing off <laughs> yeah. and coming back later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I think I'm going to take this as gospel because one of our um, best and greatest listeners, Cora, she's been mentioned a couple times. 
she gave us a little shout out and said, I think nobody equals nobody has saved seats. I love that. And so I think much. that is so perfect and we should put it on a pin. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm going to take it from, from that from now on. So if you are somebody who's just going to put little pieces of paper on seats, if there's no body there, then nobody's, nobody's got there. seats. <laughs> then nobody's there. Yeah. Oh, I kind of messed that up. <laughs> anyway, just two little follow-ups from last week. And, uh, and now we can talk about the movies that we watched this week. Yeah. You ready? I am so ready. So we've been uh, not able to watch a lot of mystery movie picks for the last while, which honestly I'm lamenting. Yeah. It's my favorite way to watch movies. Mm -hmm. But there's been so many things coming out in the theater and we did the screeners for IFE. And then in this upcoming week, we're only seeing movies in the theater. Mm -hmm. But I finally got to pick a mystery movie pick for the first time in a long time. And I've been wanting to watch this movie for a really long time and it just felt like the right moment. I picked the movie Pariah. Mm-hmm. So this is a 2011 film. It's a drama. It was directed and written by D. Rees. Um, and the synopsis is a Brooklyn teenager juggles conflicting identities and risks friendship, heartbreak, and family in a desperate search for sexual expression. It stars Adaparo Ode as Alike or Lee, Kim Wayans as Audrey, Aisha Davis as Bina, Pernell Walker as Laura, and Charles Parnell as Ar- Arthur. Um, I've been wanting to watch this movie since it came out, actually. I, I kind of heard of it at the time. The cover is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's really, really evocative of the tone of the film. Like, you'd really get that just by looking at the cover. What did you think of Pariah? I did not know about this movie. Like, I, I might have heard the title at some point in time, but I never did a deep dive or anything on it. So when it when the title card came up, I was like, okay, 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 okay. Um, I really liked this movie. Yeah. I the 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 main descriptor that I have for it is the word real. Mm-hmm. It felt so real from how it was acted, from the locations to how it was shot. It felt very intimate. Mm-hmm. It was gorgeous and heartbreaking. Yeah, and yet it's so. I mean, my I think my favorite types of movies. And this won't be the last time we talk about this this week, I don't <laughs> think, are movies that juxtapose kind of the extremes of life. Yeah. So this is a heartbreaking movie, but it's also a really beautiful movie. Yeah. Like, and not just beautiful aesthetically. Like, there's real moments of beauty in the narrative and the characters. Mm-hmm. And it's a hard movie. Like, there's a hardness to a lot of the stuff mm. that's happening, but it's also a really soft movie. Yeah. Like, the aesthetic is incredibly soft and, like, like it feels like there's kind of an ethereal lens over it at the same time that the setting, the characters and the narrative are incredibly real and at times very hard. Yeah. And I, I really love, I think any art that uses that kind of juxtaposition of the extremes of life Mm -hmm. and acknowledges that those two things can occur in the same moment. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've totally felt that. And I got that. Something that I, I had to do was, admittedly, I had a very loose knowledge of what the word pariah meant. So <laughs> I I wanted to look it up to mm-hmm. see like how that that word and having it be the title of the film related to the story of the film. So a pariah is described as a person without status, a rejected member of society, or an outcast. Mm-hmm. And that just, after I read that, it put the movie on a whole nother whole nother emotional plane for me. Mm-hmm. Like it made it hit so much more heavily. English students take note if you're listening. 
That is a good practice to I'm look up boy. words you don't know. Yeah, such a good boy. <laughs> yeah, like it just, again, you know, to go back to that word, like real, but it was, it, it also brought in this level of sadness, this very mm-hmm. real sadness. It made me feel even more for Alike and the story that was being told about them. And so it's so easy, I think, to this movie is a real, um, it's a movie that you feel. Like it takes you on this emotional journey. And I think movies like that, um, I've heard it compared to Moonlight. Mm-hmm. And I get that comparison, but th- they stand on their own. Yeah. Um, I think they have an aesthetic similarity. Yeah. That really, um, they, they'd be, it'd be a good double feature night, Pariah and Moonlight. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I feel like movies like that, that really kind of sweep you along and almost like the waves of the film, it's easy to mm. not remember specifics about it. And I I have to mention how the movie starts. Do you remember how the movie starts? Mm, Remind me. It has a a black screen with white text with a very wonderful uh, quote from Audre Lorde. Yeah. And then it immediately cuts to a scene that's like, bright and loud and is playing um, a song that was very popular at the time that is pretty not a quote from Audrey Lord. And like, I think that immediately establishes that this is a film about juxtaposition. Yeah. And that actually this, the writing of Audrey Lord and the political work that she did and this song are two parts of the same continuum. Yeah. And the film is so much about this continuum of contrast and duality and i feel it's established right there with this like literary quote that's shown to us through text Mm -hmm. and then this audio song yeah that are both culturally significant to this character yeah (laughs) it's it's fantastic it's brilliant it's great speaking of the the intro something that really stuck out for me and i'm curious if you have any thoughts on it was the type treatment on the opening credits and the closing credits. Yeah. It, it it kind of evoked the vibe of, remember those like writing workbook notebooks that you had to get when you're in kindergarten to practice that writing have, letters that yeah. have like the really, the, the lines are really high, but it has like a dotted line across the middle. Yeah, so you can try and practice where the... Um, capitals and yeah. lowercase uh, letters go. Yeah. Which I thought was a really interesting choice because it's it, like, it kind of has a bit of a juvenile, young sort of vibe to it. But it's, I feel like this movie is anything but. You know, I, I hadn't really thought much about the like reasoning behind it other than I, I did find the type a little jarring. Mm-hmm. It's not pretty. Like, no, it's 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 not like the most stylish kind of looking type. No. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah, I thought it was just that would be a question I would have for D Rees if I ever got a chance to talk to her. Yo, why that? Why that type? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I I didn't notice the type mostly because I'm, you know, I've been uh, hanging out with you for 13 years, and you, that's your job. Yeah. Um, but I didn't think too much about why, other than I wouldn't have made that choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, fair. Um, when I was looking this up, I was kind of it was kind of wild. So the 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 actor who plays Alike was 33. <laughs> yeah. Playing a 17-year-old. And I will say. Looks 17. Yeah, it was like believable as a 17-year-old, which is pheno- like phenomenal because 
so often when we see people in their 30s or, or even like mid to late 20s playing teenagers, they don't look like teenagers. I would never have guessed that she was 33. Yeah, i.e. Riverdale. I.e. Euphoria. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, aside from just like, you know, that age gap, the the performance was incredible. Oh, yeah. This film, it does such a intricate job of showing intersectionality. Mm-hmm. So like the intersections of gender and sexuality and class and religion and your like home situation, the parental support you do mm-hmm. or don't have without ever feeling like a PSA for any one of those singular things. Mm-hmm. Like it really showed how each character, depending on their different and unique circumstances, despite having many other things in common, experiences this life differently like if we look at bina laura and alike despite having some things fundamentally in common laura having a a more even more difficult relationship with her mother and not having that security of like that economic security puts her in a more precarious situation than alike Mm -hmm. and alike is in a more precarious situation than bina and like you know what i mean there's just this Mm -hmm. And it's not tied to any one thing. And the film isn't trying to like put people in boxes or make us like look at one specific aspect of their identity, but it's showing how complex that is. Yeah. Without easily resolving it for us or making it tied into a neat little bow. And that's how life is. Yeah. No, you're totally right. And what you, what you said too, like this movie does a really great job of kind of showing the, I don't know, the the rougher relationship you can have with the idea of home mm-hmm. and how anytime we went to any of our characters' homes, mm-hmm. there was this discomfort that you are immediately felt mm-hmm. or just this kind of, you know, made you kind of lean in because you're a little bit on edge and you didn't know what to expect. And then the characters that exist within these homes, like you, you, you honestly didn't know where they were coming from at the very beginning and then you know, as the story unfolds, the idea of home just, it becomes a place that's less about comfort and acceptance and um, um, safety. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that's really powerful. This movie hit me real hard. <laughs> it was great. It's interesting too, because it is part of the Criterion collection, I believe, but yeah. it's not on the Criterion channel. Um, yeah, which means it's one that I would like to get on Blu-ray because we um we got well I picked up a DVD of this from the library. I'd love to see it at a little bit higher quality mm-hmm. in, on a Blu-ray um, because it is so gorgeous. The color palette of this film, like this um, if Moonlight has kind of a blue overlay, this has a purple one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which gives it this sense of I don't know what the word would be but there's a sadness to it mm-hmm. through the color palette yet at the same time the way that it the focus that it's filmed in has a softness to it that um, helps to lessen the impact of the harshness of the purple mm-hmm. it's really phenomenal like yeah. this is a really beautifully made film from a technical standpoint yeah while at the same time being so rich from a character and narrative perspective. And that's not always the case. 
No. We have another film this week that <laughs> certainly is not at the height of the technical cinematic <laughs> achievements. Did you, I don't know how much you looked up about this, but um, this film is mostly autobiographical for Dee Rees. Right. Not not entirely, but she said it's very inspired by her life. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of what Alike goes through is evocative of like her life experience. Mm-hmm. Um, without being like this memoir. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's probably where we get that really honest sense of the intricate, complicated realities. Mm -hmm. I did read a a review, I can't remember if it was on Letterboxd or somewhere else, where someone said the film does such a good job of not villainizing the parents. Right, But still having empathy and like a, a willingness to look at where they're coming from. Yeah, there's there's complexities to them. Yeah. Like it's not just they're not just one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, I found myself in moments of hopefulness of just like and just being like, okay, come on, come on, come mm-hmm. on, you know, like. And that's a credit to the performances and Dee Rees wanting to have those characters be complex and be more than just a villain, a hero, whatever. An antagonist, it may be. right? Because yeah, I yeah. think in real life, there's very few of us who don't even when we choose to not have a relationship with someone anymore, no matter where that comes from, no matter if it's familial, romantic, friendship, whatever, mm-hmm. it's not as easy as, well, that person is just the worst, and so I'm I'm never going to talk to them. There tends to be this complicated, like, wanting and, and hoping and... Love. And, and lo- a complicated love, and I feel like that is inherent in this film with more than just one character that like we can simul again, simultaneously feel these incredibly conflicting emotions for a person and simultaneously see where they're coming from and yet be deeply hurt by them. Mm-hmm. And that's real life. It's, it's real. it's a really incredible film. And the ending is one of the best endings to a film I've ever seen, mm-hmm. both narratively and emotionally. Yeah. And technically the aesthetic in this film is mm-hmm. something else. I really liked this movie. Yeah. Me too. How did it make you feel? Uh, it made me feel sad, uh, but it also made me feel sympathetic. But it also just, it, it made me just feel wrapped up in this story. And it did that so effectively. The storytelling was amazing. Like you said, the visuals and how this was shot was amazing. Yeah, it was, it was a great film. How about you? So this movie was kind of like a painful bomb. Hmm. That made me feel a hopeful hopelessness because that is, that is what this film is. It's just contradictions wrapped up together. And I feel like that can be really useful to recognize that that's what real life is like. Mm -hmm. And we can't easily tease things apart and just have happy endings or sad endings or, Mm -hmm. you know, it's more complex than that. And huge credit to this film for exploring that. Yeah. So good. If you've never seen Pariah, I I would highly recommend seeking it out. Your library probably has it. I really like your idea too of doing a a double header of Pariah and Moonlight. I think those two pair really well. Maybe while being really very much their own things. I don't want to reduce them to we'll watch the them together because they're films about the black queer experience. They are very just aesthetically stunning films in their own right that also are willing to look at the complexity of the world Mm -hmm. and not put things into neat little boxes 
and they're both so good. Um, and so many people have seen Moonlight, but I don't think as many people have seen Pariah. So mm-hmm. if you if you liked Moonlight, I think you would like Pariah. Yeah. Totally. Okay. <laughs> Different direction. <laughs> we love this. We love a roller coaster of a movie week. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, this was my mystery movie pick. Um again, yeah, just to echo what you were saying. I I'm missing the mystery movie picks. So I'm I'm looking forward to hopefully getting back into it during spooky season mm-hmm. in October. But I chose the nineteen ninety three comedy fantasy sequel, Adam's <laughs> Family Values. <laughs> it was directed by Barry Sonnenfeld and based on the characters by Charles Adams and written by Paul Rudnick. It stars pretty much all the returning players from the first film. Angelica Houston as Morticia, Raul Julia as Gomez, Christopher Lloyd as Uncle Fester, Christina Ricci as Wednesday, uh, Jimmy Workman as Pugsley, and newcomer Joan Cusack as Debbie. Uh, the synopsis is the Adams family try to rescue their beloved Uncle Fester from his gold digging new love, a black widow <laughs> named Debbie. <laughs> uh, we watched the OG a few weeks ago, so I wanted to follow it, follow it up while it's still kind of fresh in mind. And I'm yeah, I'm, again, I'm just starting to prep for a spooky season, so I wanted to throw this one on. What did you think of Adams Family Values? <laughs> it's so. There's such a strange phenomena to be an older teenager or adult who watches something that they may have loved when they were a kid, Mm -hmm. but they are not a kid. Right. So I feel like I did with the original Adam's Family, the simultaneous, if I had seen this when I was a kid, it would be like burned into my heart. Mm -hmm. And I recognize those things and those moments, but it's just a little too silly to be like my favorite now. Right. But I did like it. I actually think I liked it better than the first one. Mm-hmm. I liked this the narrative better than the first one. Like the main story that's yeah. being told. Yeah, I wasn't as interested in the like, we're trying to, well, I guess they're both about trying to scam the Adams for their money. <laughs> but the first one was more like. We need to establish that the Adams family is super rich. Yeah, they've got that generational wealth, you know. And everyone wants the doubloons. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I will say they kind of toned down the Gomez-Morticia stuff in this one. It's still there. It's there, but it's not as prominent. And then they really upped Wednesday's stuff. Yeah. This is pros and cons. Because <laughs> like, I like both of those. Yeah, yeah. Um, And it's a shame that this never like got made into a series at the time. I, I don't know if that was just less common in the 90s and early 2000s to like take a cast and and then put them onto TV or these were all movie actors. So they weren't interested, but mm-hmm. the and, cast is fantastic. And maybe, uh, of course, but I wonder if that's just because yeah, a they're all movie actors that don't want to commit to a TV show and be like, they already made the TV show. So that's true. Yeah. They're like, we're not going to do that again. We're yeah, just going to celebrate it with these films, I guess we are getting a TV show. Yeah. Uh, Wednesday can't, I'm really excited. I really like Jenna Ortega. So I think that's going to be yeah cool. Um, so yeah, me on the other end of the spectrum is hitting exactly what you're talking about where I watched this and the original on repeat when I was a kid. I was watching this when I was three, four five years old <laughs> all the time. I, and this, this film, like you said, more heavily focuses on Wednesday. And this was the film that fully put into motion my crush on Christina Ricci when I was a kid. I was just like, oh, 
she she's cool i like her (laughs) it's starting to make sense why you were interested in pursuing a friendship with me but i was so prickly when we first met love a prickle you're looking for someone who uh (laughs) some of the things she says to that boy (laughs) at the end of the movie (laughs) i'd scare him to death (laughs) i love a prickly pair hey happy to fill that role for you (laughs) i still i will say i still like the first one better i think just because maybe i watched it more Mm -hmm. um I think that I like the story a little bit more. Like I like that they're all together. This one is very kind of like let's set up, let's pull the family apart into different directions for this one. And yeah, yeah, it, it just it it wasn't as together as I would have liked. But Joan Cusack is so great. Like oh, yeah. she's so much better than like the mom who's kind of serves the role. That right. she does in the original film, like she is such a presence and so interesting to watch in this movie. I, I also would like to think it's canon that her character in this and her character in School of Rock are the same person. <laughs> <laughs> so does this take place before or after School I think of before, Rock? after what happens to her at the end of the movie, she forgets who she was and she goes on to. Right. That In my head, that's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> I love to think about it now. Both of these films are all about w- <laughs> these women that are just trying to take advantage of Fester. <laughs> I'm curious because I'm not very familiar with the show or the original comic. If that was a like if Fester was kind of a like bumbling, easily manipulated guy, and that's like mm. you know how Archie comics and things like that we have you know jughead's gonna want some food you know like that kind of stuff mm-hmm. like if that is who that character was i'm just not familiar enough with the og stories to know if that's just yeah. indicative of that character yeah me neither you like that uh little okay go video near the end of the movie too okay with go. pubert <laughs> yes oh my god pubert what a bit did not get that as a kid (laughs) we should uh get a pet and name it pubert i (laughs) think you (laughs) i think that the what this film does the best and does better than the first one all right it it comes even harder with the puns oh yeah i mean the title of the movie is a pun explain family values adam's family values. yeah i get that yeah um but like all of the just like they're spooky people. So, you know, they 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 like to yes and people with the with the spooky. Okay, so speaking of, this is both totally fucked and also great. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know this, but when Christina Ricci was doing press for this movie, she was 13 years old at the time. An interviewer asked her if she'd gone through puberty yet. Yikes. And her response was, No, I'm going through menopause. <laughs> Oh man. It's like good for her for just like Wednesday Adamsing that question that was so ridiculously inappropriate. Like who who gives a fuck? Like why is that a relevant qu- like what is that going to get anybody? I don't know. Gross question. Fantastic response. Yeah. Good honor. God. That's gross. I hate that. Okay, so we should talk about the Thanksgiving scene. Yeah. I feel gross about it. 
mm-hmm. complicated about it. Um, and it's a bit you, of a dirge on an otherwise pretty good film. You read some interesting stuff on it. Yeah, I you know, when there's something like this that I see it and it makes me uncomfortable. And to me, this is really appropriative of like indigenous people's history and story and current reality. But it's also like not my place to speak about that as a white person who like has, you know, a history of my family being settlers on this land. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I wanted to see if there was a voice that I could learn from about this. And I found this really powerful article called Wednesday Adams is just another settler. Um, And I'm going to read part of it here. It's quite long, but I I will post the full article in our show notes, especially because we are in Canada, at least approaching Thanksgiving pretty soon. Um, And we're going to talk about this a little bit more later, but also tomorrow when this episode airs is truth and reconciliation day in Canada. So I, I think this article is pretty important to think about in the context of this film, but also in the context of, Truth and Reconciliation Day, and then upcoming Thanksgiving. So this article was written by Alyssa Washatu in 2017. I'm going to read two paragraphs from it. Um, So she wrote, Thanksgiving is upon us, so it's time for the internet to celebrate that video clip of Wednesday Adams in a beaded headband. This clip's Facebook rounds used to be one of the things I liked about Thanksgiving. I, too, am the little brunette outcast, knife-eyed and long-haired, seen only in dresses black as bat wings, even through summer. I, like Wednesday, do not trust the pilgrims. Smug in my embrace of the macabre and hoping to grow up to be Morticia, I paint my lips red as a guillotine's blade. I'm the kind of girl who flirts by asking, as Wednesday says to her love interest while they stare across a skeleton's ribcage, do you believe in the existence of evil? But Wednesday Adams is a settler. I can only trust her if she gives me reason to. This year, I will not celebrate her monologue. I am neither Wednesday nor Fester. I am not the grim girl with her own guillotine, not the unsmiling camper who would let the blonde girl drown. Neither am I the old ghoul who wants a companion so badly he clings to the woman who tries to electrocute him in the bath. But I am a loner and a weirdo. Even in our kindergarten Thanksgiving celebration, for which I was assigned a construction paper feathered headband that signified my affiliation with the half of the class playing the Indians, I didn't belong. Because I was going to be native the next day too, and every day after. Well, they were going to forget we'd even played this game. Mm-hmm. So that's it, this is a really incredible piece that speaks even more substantially to um, what was going on in the world in 2017 that still is incredibly relevant today in 2022. So I'm going to post that full article and I would encourage people to read it, particularly if they um, are white. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's it's uh, our duty to listen to voices that aren't ours. And I was really moved by the article and it helped me to like think about my feelings about that scene and certainly just, you know, not proliferating stuff that like I think is cool without thinking about how folks are directly impacted by it Mm -hmm. are uh, navigating their relationship to that stuff. Yeah. So really, really great article that helped me think about that. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think it, uh, we've had to do it a few times on the show, rewatching stuff from our childhood or even more recent stuff that we just it's it's not responsible of us as people that grow and change to just paint everything from the past with this broad brush of like oh it's fine oh they didn't know better it was the 90s and it's like that that can both be true and not true 
But like, I think it is our responsibility to think about it, reflect on it, acknowledge that stuff about it as we engage with it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I say this all the time in my life, in my classroom, I say it's okay to like things that have problems, but we need to name those problems and talk about them. That's Mm -hmm. our duty if we like these things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would highly encourage people to read the article. We'll post it in the show notes and, um, Thank you to Alyssa for writing that piece. Yeah. Gorgeous. How did Adam's family values make you feel? Made me feel torn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a lot of different ways because, you know, of, of <laughs> that scene in particular, but also just I want it to be darker than it is. Yeah. Like it's a little, it's a little too hammy for me. I even yeah. think about the stuff that was more in this vein that I did like as a kid and it was darker. It was like Beetlejuice is darker than this. I even think the first Adams Family is darker than this one. I think so too. But but that's even a little hammy. Like I liked Edward Scissorhands and Beetlejuice and um, Nightmare Before Christmas. I guess is like mm-hmm. pretty child friendly. But I think all of those are darker. Yeah. Like this is dark comedy. Where I think those are like just darker films with a little bit of comedy whereas this is kind of comedy forward first yeah right yeah so yeah I'm, I'm glad i've seen them they're not something that i feel a need to revisit all the time how about you as someone who like really liked these films as a kid yeah i mean uh, it makes me feel that sense of nostalgia that will never go away because i watched this so much as a kid but you know now that i'm older and more politically aware um its issues are revealed so you know it it also makes me feel torn and you know, more aware and willing to critique, critique uh, this and other films from my past that weren't doing the best things. Uh, and I feel like somebody somebody knew that. But, you know, who knows? Yeah. Wah, wah. Wah, wah, indeed. This next one, bit of a redemption. Yeah, I'm stoked to talk about this. Okay. Set we, it up. Uh, we went and saw Clerks 3. Yep, yep, yep. We're, uh, we're wrapping up some trilogies. Yeah. So Clerks 3 is listed just as a comedy, but I would call it a comedy drama, personally. I agree. Directed and written by our eventual-to-be dad, Kevin Smith, <laughs> um, starring, like with <laughs> Adam's family, much of the cast from the past films. So Jeff Anderson is Randall Graves, Brian O'Halloran is Dante, Dante Hicks. Uh, Trevor Fairman as Elias, Kevin Smith as Silent Bob, Jason Mewes as Jay, and then basically every other person who is a friend or family member of Kevin Smith is in this film in some way, (laughs) or of Jason Mewes. Um, The synopsis, Dante, Elias, and Jay and Silent Bob are enlisted by Randall after he has a heart attack to make a movie about the convenience store that started it all. Mm -hmm. So this is one meta romp, as is now the way of Kevin Smith, and I am here for it, although many are not. What did you think of Clerks 3? This movie, I found it sticking with me days after I'd seen it. Like it's still sticking with me in a way I didn't, I wouldn't think or expect a Kevin Smith movie to do. Um, even when I was like kind of prepping my notes for this, I found myself kind of getting emotional thinking about thinking back to this movie. And in the the immediate days after we saw it, I found myself going online wanting to look up the soundtrack and and get, grab some of the music. The soundtrack slaps. Kevin Smith is really good with music. Um, well, I will say his his levels with the music were 
<laughs> not the most yeah. insightfully edited. The music itself is what is is great. Yeah. But, you know, for a story that could have re- literally gone anywhere, especially after the, I'll say it, disaster that was Clerks 2, mm-hmm. it, this could have gone in a lot of different directions. But what what a great button on the Clerks trilogy. A trilogy that almost never happened. Uh, I don't know if you were looking stuff up, yeah. but uh, Jeff Anderson, who plays Randall, and Kevin Smith had a bit of a falling out. And I, I remember hearing about this through the years where Kevin Smith always talked about doing a Clerks 3. Jeff Anderson was like, no, I don't want to do that. And then going back and forth, eventually they had a fallout, but then they linked back up. Kevin Smith wrote a script and Jeff Anderson was in. The stars aligned and this movie was made. I think the story goes too that they were at some kind of a like signing or comic book convention or something and yeah. just like had to be in the same space and thrown into the same space again. They kind of reconnected or, or whatever it may be. And yeah, man, is that not just the truth about life? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This movie was really funny. It had some really great yeah. bits, but I like you were kind of saying with um adam's family values like where you know and even the previous clerks where i think it led with funny and then drama kind of came second i don't i i agree like i feel like this was flipped here i feel like it was drama first funny second Mm -hmm. and it worked so well and i feel like this was such a such a smart approach and direction to go in especially after clerks too well so this is a couple things that are interesting to me first of all i'll say if you don't like Kevin Smith, I don't know how much this movie would work for you. Yeah. And if you're already you're like rolling your eyes at Kevin Smith, you're probably not going to like this movie. Um, but if you like Kevin Smith and you've enjoyed Clerks 1 and or 2, probably not if you just like revere Clerks 2 because I think <laughs> even Kevin yeah. Smith is reflecting on some of the choices he's made. Yeah. This movie is for people who are like in... I feel like we're all, if you are a Kevin Smith fan, you are part of the VSQ universe. Yeah. It's for, it's for those people. Yeah. And I feel, I felt like because we were there on the first day it opened. It was an advanced screening. Yeah. yeah. In Edmonton. So we, we were in a theater full of Kevin Smith fans. Oh, you could feel an affection. Yes. Like even as yeah. people were walking in, you could feel this like, so I, you know, I totally forgot about this until just this moment. One of the cutest things that happened in contrast to oh, yes. the seat, seat, the no body, no buddy thing at Jurassic Park and some theater stuff we're going to talk about with our next film. So we sat down and so many theaters now are reserve your own seats. Mm-hmm. Like you, you have to reserve a seat. We sat down. We usually pick seats like right on the aisle because you're a long boy and you like to have some room for your legs. <laughs> it's true. Um, and then there was a seat between us and then two people sitting together. Mm-hmm. And then this group of three people came and this, this showing was quite sold out. Mm, yeah. And uh, two of them sat down on the other side of those two people. And then one sat down in between us and the two people were like, Oh, are you three together? And they were like, yeah, but you know, we couldn't get seats together. And they're like, Oh no worries. We'll just, we'll just move down. Yeah. And just like, so nicely. And so like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, of course. And then oh, one of them <laughs> asked you. <laughs> Cause we, the seats, have a reclining function where it has a like a footrest that comes up. So uh, as soon as the movie started, I put mine up, and the person that ended up sitting next to me is just like, "How did you do that?" 
so I had to give a, a quick little tutorial on how to put up the footrest for this person. That person was very grateful. They but I just, it. there was some sense of camaraderie. Like we're all here on opening night because yeah. we all obviously like Kevin Smith. We've watched. We've probably all seen Jay and Silent Bob reboot. Like we know what this is about by now. Yeah, we've we've been through Clerks 1 and 2, assuming that everybody in the theater has seen everything. And is like just familiar with Kevin Smith and what his vibe is now, right? Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, there was a warmth to the theater that I've rarely felt where it's just like everybody in here is here to like honor this movie or like, I don't know. There was something about it. Like this movie was a response, a reflection and a reboot. Mm -hmm. Like it, it reflect, like it, it really felt like Kevin Smith reflecting on his own life through looking at where he was at when he made Clerks 1, where he was at when he made Clerks 2, and the choices he made in that, and not in a hammy way. Like, it felt to me honest. Yeah. But it still does that while honoring the characters, honoring the story, and honoring the fans. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think at any point it's trying to denigrate people who liked aspects of Clerks 1 and 2 that perhaps Kevin Smith would do differently now and does do differently now. Mm -hmm. This film is still, it's still got some, like, crass humor but it's not punching down anymore that's the biggest thing is that it's it's not punching down it's not this vehicle for negativity or making people the butt of a joke and like well like you know there are some people like it there's folks taking the piss out of each other but in a way that's i don't know i just enjoy it a lot better and it's uh it feels more accessible to me because yeah i don't feel and I don't feel like comedy now, which I've been happy about. So much of the comedy that's coming out now is not about shock value. It's not about trying to be titillating. It's not trying about who can say the most offensive thing. It's kind of about where can we find the heart within mm -hmm. the humor. You know what being in this theater felt like? Mm. Being at the Peter Hook show. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's a that's a really great poll. I agree. I don't know. It was just there was this sense of when he made callbacks to particularly the first film, like people just even without making any noise, you could like feel everybody's heart swelling. Well, and I think a big part of that, too, is because we are Kevin Smith as a person fans. So yeah. we've kind of been following his story for a long time. And we kind of know things he's gone through, things he's seen, stuff that he's gone through with his relationships and people in his life. So I felt like this was such a beautiful showcase of how Kevin Smith, the person, has evolved. And he put so much of himself and his experiences yeah. into this film, which gave it an emotional heft and weight that I wasn't expecting. And if I think you, it was beautiful. If you like Kevin Smith as a person and you know his story, how can you not be watching this movie that has a character who has the same type of heart attack he has. And that's in the trailer mm -hmm. and it's in the synopsis and not be thinking about him going through that and not be thinking about the fact that like we wouldn't have this movie if he hadn't survived. That's probably a big right? part of like, it Like it's just, then you throw in the fact that like I have a dad that did die from a heart attack. <laughs> yeah. And Ooh boy, is this a sentimental movie for me? I cried so many times. Oh, me too. Like very early into the film, I was crying. And then I me just, too. it was just kind of like, 
they give you some nice moments where like the tears are gone. It's not like an everything everywhere all at once where like once you start crying, you're just kind of consistently crying and punctuating it with moments of laughter through the tears. Like I would stop crying and then I would start crying again. And I have to say, Brian O'Halloran in particular was the one making me cry. Mm-hmm. I think he killed it at the more dramatic moments in this. This was his swan really, song. really impressed by him. Yeah, this was his swan song. Like the what Kevin Smith gave him to work with. Like I think, I think he did a really great job with Randall and evolving Randall away from who Randall was in Clerks Two. Mm-hmm. But the Dante character, just the things that he is going through, things he's dealing with, the direction and path his life has taken in this film, I wouldn't have expected it. I, that's not what I was expecting going into this film. And I think it was, a, again, a really smart choice for Kevin Smith to give that character this arc. And yeah, Brian O'Holler and crushed it. Like, yeah, it was. I was really, really impressed. With it was that. a hell of a performance. Yeah, yeah. I think like the one I don't. There's not a lot of shit that, to talk about this movie. Like, I really liked it. I think the one critique that I have of it and it's just like minor quibble was just it kind of suffers from a here and there of just kind of the Kevin Smith m- more recent Kevin Smith movie isms of just editing and <laughs> pacing. Yeah. Um just it just it can kind of pull you out of the moment a little bit. Yeah. And I cuz and it it's disappointing because there's some really great scenes where some of those things start creeping in and yeah. I'm so emotionally invested and it just yeah it just kind of starts taking me out of it a little bit and it's kind of like ah piss <laughs> <laughs> the same time i can't i agree with you and i'm not somebody who typically notices that kind of stuff so when i am noticing it i'm like oh like that's it's got to be pretty substantial for me to pick up on it because i'm so yeah. not a visual person like usually i'm just along for the ride and then afterwards somebody might be like oh did you notice that like unless i'm purposefully trying to look for the film techniques being used, I'm just letting them wash over me. Mm-hmm. Um, minor quibble, though. Minor quibble, because I can just tell how much fun he had making this. And if you are familiar with like his life, you're like, oh, there's the comic book. Like, there's Walt. There's Brian. There's Ming. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, that's Jason Mew's wife and daughter. <laughs> like, you know. Yeah, it pays to be a fan of Kevin Smith, the <laughs> yeah. person, when watching Clerks Three, because you know who all the oh, there's the guy from. Uh, Mark Bernardin, right? Like it's yeah, just yeah. so it's so great. And then there's all these other cameos of like just actors that have been in his movies, or like even just like really famous actors that you're like, why are you in this? Mm-hmm. Um, that are really cool and really funny. But that's ultimately not what this film is about. There's like a real heart to this film, and this is what I was going to talk about earlier. But we kind of start moving away. This film, I think, establishes that like the quick stop is the heart of clerks Mm -hmm. and that's because it also was such an important place to kevin smith the person and clerks too to my understanding doesn't seem to have been reflective of anything going on in kevin smith's life whereas clerks one was Mm -hmm. and clerks three is yeah so like when you leave the quick stop in clerks two and have this yes it's funny movies is funny ha 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 but you go to this other place that's just schlocky and for laughs and you take out anything that's like actually narratively significant to Kevin Smith, the person, at least the way I see it, you lose the heart that makes his movies what they are. Yeah. And this brought the heart back through the quick stop and through aligning it with experiences that Kevin Smith has had. Yeah. Which is what the first film did. So this, I can see myself revisiting clerks and clerks three 
all the time and now just skipping Clerks 2. Yeah, because I think that Clerks 3 does a good enough job of it takes the most important parts of Clerks 2 mm-hmm. and arguably the best parts of Clerks 2 mm-hmm. with it. And yeah, I and agree. that's enough. <laughs> yeah, that's that, yeah, that's it. I mean, could have used an Alanis Morissette song in it, but <laughs> that's fine. It did um, uh, something that Kevin Smith does, or at least did in the Clerks movies that we've rewatched recently, is he writes his um his thanks more yeah. like a book thanks, more like what you have at the um in the author's note at the end of a book or the acknowledgement section of a novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always read those. Um, when I read a book, I read the um dedication and I read the acknowledgements at the end. And because you and I always sit through the credits of a film, that's actually two of my favorite parts about sitting through the credits of a film are seeing the thanks at the end. Mm -hmm. And they happen so fast. You're like, oh, there's another filmmaker I know or, oh, right, that's their wife or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they also like seeing where it was filmed because it usually has the locations at the end too. Yeah. So And those are right, right at the very end of the, of the credits. I always like looking at those. But Kevin Smith actually puts thanks with like, so his one to his daughter was just so beautiful. I'm going to spoil his thanks to his daughter here. Sorry, everyone. Um, but I think it said uh, to Harley, my favorite actress and my favorite human. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, that's so beautiful. Um, but he had that for every person that he thanked. And I, when we watched Clerks 1 and 2, we paused so we could read them all. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get them all here. And I'm like, I can't wait for that to come out so I can pause and see exactly what how he was thanking everyone. Yeah. It's so beautiful. It's a really meaningful thing to do. Well, and something else I really liked. So at the end of his film Tusk, he put in clips of the conversation between him and Scott Mosier when they had their podcast episode of Smodcast where they came up with the idea for the film Tusk. Mm-hmm. But at the end of this one, it's just Kevin Smith voiceover of him just talking about how grateful he is to have people that have come out to see the film, what the film means to him, how it came about. And just kind of thanking the audience, which I thought was just like, what a great use of credits and being able to express to your audience gratitude. And I don't know, I I feel like he's the only filmmaker that would do that. (laughs) (laughs) That's the thing. I think that this this is a Kevin Smith film that reflects who Kevin Smith is now. I am such a big I have such a love for people who are willing to evolve and grow and change and knowing he's done that in his personal life, which I know has lost him some of his like real, his fans that are real different from us. <laughs> That's a nice way of putting yeah. it. Um, who like, you know, think Kevin Smith is a sellout or a loser now or whatever, but I mm-hmm. think we know who the real losers are. Um, and the, we, we know that from his podcasts and his social media and we've seen him come and speak more recently and we know how he's changed as a person and this film is such an honoring of that. Yeah. While also then tying that evolution into like the story of Clerks and allowing Clerks itself to evolve and become something new. And I have so much love and respect for people who are who are willing to grow and change and become new people while still honoring who they were. This movie's like a therapy session. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's the, so beautiful. I really love Kevin Smith. The whole time we've been sitting here, I'm kind of sitting here with like a lump in my throat. <laughs> Just because like this movie... I didn't I didn't expect it to be as emotional and hard hitting as it was and as beautiful as it was. And like I said, it's really stuck with me. And I think I agree. Like I think we'll watch Clerks One and Clerks Three. I I think again, like 
and this happens with a film we watch later this week, what a beautiful way to end a trilogy. Yeah, it's really, films. really lovely. And I just, I just really like Kevin Smith. And I, I like when I can like a person who maybe has said and done things in the past that I don't necessarily agree with or like, I'm kind of like, Ugh. and they know that too mm -hmm. because pe people do things and we grow and change from them. Mm -hmm. So I this just, is a celebration of that. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a celebration of growth. I really like Kevin Smith. Um, if you're listening, we want you to be our dad. We want you to be our friend. We want you to come on the show. We live in Edmonton. The next time you're here, you can stay at our house. We have a spare bedroom. <laughs> um, we don't know any of the Oilers, but like six degrees of separation, I'm sure we know somebody who does. Our brother-in-law has like an Oilers like garage. My boss knows the guy who sings the anthem at the Oilers games. We'll get you, we'll get you in. <laughs> Just come be our dad. <laughs> yeah. And, and thank you for the hurry up already. Yeah. Where are you? <laughs> okay. How did Clerks 3 make you feel? It made me feel really happy. Mm -hmm. And it made me feel really emotional. <laughs> <laughs> well, funny, because it made me feel relieved. Because yep. I was worried after watching Clerks 2, and I'm such a fan of Kevin Smith. He's one of those people that, despite him originating as some somebody that you showed me, I feel like I have my own relationship with his work and his stuff, and I'm mm -hmm. a big fan of him, both with you and on my own. Mm -hmm. um, but then it also just made me feel incredibly emotional. So, yep. <laughs> yep. Um, if you are liking what we're saying about this, but you've never seen a Kevin Smith movie and you don't know Clerks, I don't know that you would feel the same way we do. Mm -hmm. But for those people that were in that audience with us, we all felt it. Yeah. And that's a really meaningful thing. And I'm thankful for Kevin Smith for making movies for his audience. I really appreciate that. Yeah. And we're the people and, um, I think he appreciates us too. So that's a, that's a really good point. And not to kind of make this run longer, but I, I really think that it's a kind of a rarity to have a director or a filmmaker or filmmakers that are that know and understand their audience and are making films catered to their very, you know, their very select audience. <laughs> um, We're a part of a baby. Yeah. But yeah, I just feel like so much of it is about box office numbers and who can make the most money and who can recoup costs after the pandemic and whatnot. And it's just a beautiful thing to see somebody making the art that they want to make. Speaking of making oh, the art that you want to make. Did they ever, I guess. I don't know. Maybe. Um, I kind of <laughs> wrecked our Friday night by suggesting we go to the opening of Don't Worry, Darling, a 2022 <sighs> drama mystery thriller directed by Olivia Wilde. And written by Katie Silberman, Carrie Van Dyke, and Shane Van Dyke. It stars the absolutely awesome Florence Pugh. This is why we went to the movie. Yeah. was for Florence Pugh. Love Florence Pugh. As Alice, Harry Styles as Jack, Chris Pine as Frank, Olivia Wilde as Bunny, Kiki Lane as Margaret, Gemma Chan as Shelley, uh, Nick Kroll as Dean, and Sidney Chandler as Violet. Um, the synopsis is a 1950s housewife living with her husband in a utopian experimental community begins to worry that his glamorous company could be hiding disturbing secrets. Ooh. Does he really worry? That synopsis seems wrong. Oh, whatever. Blame IMDb. <laughs> um, so the trailer for this is great. It's one of the best trailers I've ever seen in my life. And we've seen it a lot and it definitely piqued our interest. We're like, okay, this could be cool. And, we wanted to see this again for Florence Pugh, 
And we want to see it despite all the drama that's going mm-hmm. on about this film. Like, we don't, it's bonkers, ridiculous, and we don't really care. And that wasn't a big draw for us to come to the film. Um, but yeah, we, we really like Florence Pugh. I think we also really like Gemma Chan. Like, yeah, the things we've seen her in, we like her in. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> what do you think of Don't Worry, Darling? I did not like Don't Worry, Darling. <laughs> Okay, how did it make you feel? <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Cut print. <laughs> um, okay, yeah. So obviously there is so much drama with this movie, mm-hmm. which on the one hand, kind of fun. Um, but I went in being like, I'm just going to see this film for what it is and put that out of my mind. Yeah. That was the attitude I went to it with. Um, and we like the, the reviews have kind of been, this is not good. So we've yeah. t- we tempered our expectations going into it. We're we're open to it if it is actually turns out being good, but we're also open to it if it's not good. Not but great. we weren't like, oh, I'm automatically going to hate this movie because of all the behind the scenes stuff. Yeah. I honestly feel like I have very little to add because everything the reviews say about it is just true. Yeah. It's visually beautiful. Stunning. Florence Pugh is phenomenal. Amazing. The most, for me, the most striking elements in the film, though, and the most riveting dialogue in the film was seen in the trailer. Yes. Which makes there be very little else, mm-hmm. which is disappointing. Florence Pugh is great. Harry Styles is not. Is he the worst? <laughs> no. But you put him beside Florence Pugh and he looks pretty bad. Well, in regard to the Harry Styles of it all, <sighs> being there on opening night, the theater was electric with teenage Harry Styles stands. Yeah, we had to move because I'm very impacted by sensory things. And there was two presumably teenagers beside us who were just Snapchatting the film the whole time. Like every time Harry Styles came on screen, they were taking a picture. And and I was just like, I need to move to a spot where we can't see them. So I'm not seeing this like flashing light, flashing light, flashing light, flashing light. And I don't think they were the only ones in the film doing that, but we moved to a spot where we couldn't really see anybody. Yeah. Um, so that I could <laughs> really just... found our own little island <laughs> within yeah. the theater. Um, but it was, yeah, I mean, like when there's sex scenes with Harry Styles, like voracious giggling. And then I, I will say it ended up being like better audience wise than I thought it would because I saw somebody on Letterboxd say, don't go, maybe wait a while because the Harry, St- Harry Styles fans are insufferable. Yeah. Um, and at first I was really worried as we saw like person who looked like Harry Styles fan after person who looked like Harry Styles fan <laughs> enter the <laughs> yeah. theater. I was like, ah, um, it's like a one direction concert. Also, I really like teenagers. I work with them every day. There's a reason I do what I do, but I'm kind of not looking to be around them after work. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, this is different for you, Elliot, because you're not around teenagers all day. You're kind of like, oh, whatever. And I'm like, I have spent the last week around teenagers <laughs> i need to know more i need to not be around them for a while Go and then away. i'll talk with them about that on monday um so i th- i was worried that they would just be constant chatter throughout the whole film and actually for the most part the film was pretty quiet mm-hmm. but the third act of this movie is so bad mm-hmm. that that's when the audience started just like laughing talking, yelling at the screen, but in a way that honestly didn't even upset me because like the movie was so but it's ridiculous. And the thing is, it's like, I feel like that's not even the fault of the audience. No, it's the fault of the movie. The movie <laughs> did such, it, it, it did, did a piss poor job. It did a piss poor job of dragging us along for the first two acts and then expected us to be patient enough by the third act to be all in. And 
we weren't. Because like the thing is, is they they did a lot. They had a lot of things that I f- that they shot that I feel the attitude was this will look good in the trailer, but won't serve the actual plot in any positive way. And in the trailer, they set up there's a plot point where the other shoe is going to drop and you're going to kind of find out the mystery or the secret that they've already hinted at with the trailer. And because you're, you know that the other shoe is going to drop, they take their time to the other shoe dropping and it's not a fun time. It's not a time that makes the plot way amazing, kick-ass, awesome. It's frustrating. It's a slog. It's totally inconsistent. You yes. know, comparing it to something like Pariah. You know, so so Pariah is a film that's slow the whole way through. Mm-hmm. Adam's Family Values and Clerks, fast the whole way through. Film we're going to talk about next, slow the whole way through. There's a consistency to the tone and the pacing of the film that makes it a coherent whole. This is a slow burn for two acts and then races through the third act when, like, we want information about these reveals and then we don't get them. And yeah. we're just supposed to be like, okay. Well, like I said, they, and I think you said this to me, was that they shot these some of these things that work really well in a trailer, but they're like, ooh, that'll get people intrigued and don't pay any of it off. Yeah. So it's like, what, what was the point then? Well, and this was a movie that like the more I thought about it. So when you say Clerks 3, like impacted you more the more you sat with it. Mm-hmm. When this first ended, I was like, okay, it wasn't good, but it wasn't the worst thing I ever saw. As I thought about it more and more, I'm like, but what was with that? But what was with that? And everybody online's doing the same yeah, thing. Yeah, like, here's a list of 10 things that weren't answered about the film. And you and I talked about this. It's not like it's a Lynchian film where therefore that's okay. And there's a way to interpret it personally and thematically. But there's not like a concrete interpretation of it it's like no this is a film that sets itself up to have answers and then doesn't give you the answers yeah you can't do that no um well they did (laughs) (laughs) shouldn't have they shouldn't have it's just it's such a shame because florence Pugh is really fantastic in it but you know i've I've read some like i feel like nothing i'm saying here is original because like 95 percent of people are in agreeance of like the yeah. successes and faults of this film. And one thing I've seen is, yeah, Florence Pugh is great, but it's the same thing the whole movie. It's yeah. very one note. And she does great with that one note, but she just wasn't given enough to work with. And yeah. Look at Midsommar. She's so good and has so much range. And there's levels. That. Yeah. Even um, her in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, she's given levels within that. Like, she can act. She's amazing. This movie is, I'm going to make an analogy that I just came up with in my head. It's like the first two acts of this film were driving through a school zone. Right. And then we go straight from a school zone onto a highway. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. it's like, what? But you don't go from a school zone to a highway. There's you, roads in between yeah, there. exactly. Like it's, honestly, and you and I have talked about this a ton. Reduce the runtime. This makes a great episode of TV. Yeah. There is actually, we won't speak to it because it, it gets spoilery, but you... Uh, I think you read something that kind of laid out an alternate plot uh, that kind of yeah. rearranges the acts a little bit or just the things that happen in a way that after you told that to me, I'm like, that would be an amazing film. Like that would be way better and way more interesting. But I totally agree with you. Like we, a comparison we kept going back to is Black Mirror. Like if you cut this story down 
to an hour and trimmed it to an hour long hour 20 story uh similar to a black mirror episode i think that i think i think it could have been solid and and you might be more forgiving of its faults because like there's many episodes and and we're more willing you know if you throw on black mirror or twilight zone or something like that to kind of let some of those things not have answers but i have to say i, I read a review too that was like Okay, so Florence Pugh's character's name is Alice and Olivia Wilde's character's name is Bunny. They And then it was like, they really don't trust their audience, do they? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, goodness. It was just... Not good. It was not great. I also feel like it's a bit of a like... I don't know what the word is, but I feel like they're trying to trick us into thinking that this is like the most feminist of feminist movies because it's written and directed by a woman when the original story is co-written by two brothers. Yeah. Like the the original story, like where the story originates from is from men. And this feels like men's take on feminism. Not that men can't have good takes on feminism, but this is not. A, <laughs> this is not a good one. Um, yeah. And like, I'm sorry to those those brothers, but like they're most well known for the Chernobyl Diaries, which is not a good movie. Not good. I mean, people can grow, people can change, people can get better. But um, this is not an example of that. <laughs> So like you said, I know that we're just adding to the pee-pee-poo-poo commentary that is online right now, and we're not <laughs> we're not really changing the conversation. But how did this make you feel? In the moment, incredibly disappointed, and then afterwards increasingly frustrated. Yeah, my... Uh, same. It made me feel frustrated because there is a more interesting story here. There is... A, I feel like... If you spe- if you dug deep, there is an interesting story to tell here, and there's ways to tell it more interestingly. And it is, you know, at times re- very well acted. It is at times very beautifully you, shot. You had like some cream of the crop actors here, the exception of Harry Styles, <laughs> that could have made this really, really great. It was not great. Thus, frustrated. Yeah, we saw that trailer so many times, and we're really excited for this movie, and. Mm-hmm. What a letdown. I think that another thing that's really frustrating about it is that it was clearly given so much money because it is so gorgeous visually. But then I've heard not to, again, go back to our initial conversation, but I've heard, you know, people kind of wondering how how much the studio was involved then. And maybe this film isn't the film anybody wanted to make. Do you know what I mean? Uh, Yeah. That like they were asked to change things or you know, that there was more studio involvement in the editing and, and final product than which would have su- been like. Which wouldn't surprise me because the state of Warner Brothers is kind of in shambles right now. Like yeah. they, they cut a bunch of releases. They're only releasing two movies this year. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's a whole nightmare situation. I think one day we'll get a amazing tell all about it. Maybe it'll be on Cursed Films. We've been watching that show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's uh, let's finish out the week with something awesome. I feel like Pariah and this movie are beautiful bookends to our week. Yeah, big time. So we closed off another trilogy by going to our favorite place, Metro Cinema, and seeing Three Colors Red. So it's the final in the Three Colors trilogy. We've talked about blue and white on previous episodes. I think white was last week, blue was the week before. So Three Colors Red came out in 1994. It is a drama mystery, and it says it's a romance, but take that with a grain of salt. It's directed by Christoph (laughs) Kieslowski, written by Kieslowski with scenario support from Christoph Piesquitz and Agnieszka Holland. 
um, starring Irene Jacob as Valentine and Jean-Louis Trindignant as Le Juge. Le Juge. Le Juge. Um, the synopsis, a model discovers a retired judge is keen on invading people's privacy. What do you think of Three Colors Red? I mean, what a freaking treat that the best film in a trilogy is the last one. Yeah. It was so good. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that uh, the ranking for both of us is red, blue, white. Yeah. Um, Blue's a close second. Yes. They're very both close. very good. Um, but yeah, I mean, this was totally awesome. I loved it so much. I'm also, so just in terms of the story that's being told here, I am a sucker for a young person happening upon an older person and this the adventure that ensues between these two. <laughs> just like. Can you think of another film that's like that? Uh, I mean, like a, um, oh, what's it called? Um, your favorite, your favorite book. One of your favorite books. My favorite book. The, oh, like Extremely Loud and Incredibly yeah, Close. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not the movie. The movie's bad. Yeah, yeah. But like stuff like that or even to a degree uh, a monster calls. Like it's kind Mm. of like, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, But it was, you know, it was the mystery aspect that really hooked me. Oh, yeah. There's a great eeriness to this movie. Yeah. It's uh, it makes you lean in. Yeah. It's a really quiet, contemplative film. Like almost philosophical in nature mm-hmm. while still having this like intriguing mystery at its core that you're like not even that sure what the mystery is. Mm-hmm. But you're like, at least I was wanting to see what was going to unfold. Yeah. And the I found the characters really interesting. I I didn't love the characters with the exception of you know, if you go back and listen to our conversation about white, like there's a few moments with the characters that I like, but I love the characters throughout the whole film in mm-hmm. in red I, I thought they were i thought they were great i was hip to after you know reading about white and that they always had white present in every shot of the film uh we were very hip to there being red in every shot well, of this film. not every shot nearly nearly every shot and i you know i i did notice it a lot more in this film and i don't know if it's because like you're saying we're we're hip to it now from blue and white or if it's just because red is such a striking color yeah it's just so much more um noticeable like white and blue can kind of blend in a little bit more mm-hmm. um but i really noticed it here and it was yeah quite striking like you said but even aside from you know that kind of could be seen as a gimmick i don't see it as one because these films are you know almost literary films Mm-hmm. They're they're films <laughs> and their movies. Um, the use of lighting in this film was really something that I found engaging. Mm-hmm. There's a scene in each of these movies. There's like a scene that's really stuck with me. Yeah. In blue, white and red. And in this one, it was a scene with a lamp and a light bulb. That's yeah. all I'll say. But that scene was um, my favorite scene in the movie. And it's one that the dialogue in it and the ideas that come out of it, I think will just really have a lasting impact on me. And they're ones that I will really remember. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All of the moments between Valentine and Le Juge um, are incredible. Something I really like in all of those scenes too, that seems to just kind of happen naturally is Valentine always kneels. Like she doesn't necessarily sit, but she just kind of, 
Because I think Le Juge is sitting like sitting he's in usually, a chair. He's usually sitting and he's usually um like what you would get if you just had a like mid shot. Yeah, yeah. But Valentine always kind of crouches or like sinks to the floor to kind of go below his eye level, which is just like it just is a very simple and effective way of just kind of showing her intrigue and her interest and just kind of this wonder of what Le Juge has to say or what he's bringing, bringing to the table. Well, what I, I love that. what I read um, on their Wikipedia, the Wikipedia page for this film, there's like an analysis section is that in almost every shot characters are not at the same level. So she's either kneeling or she's standing above him. Both right. happen. Right. Um, and that there's other scenes as well. So think of the scene in like the theater later mm-hmm. where there's like someone up above them mm-hmm. um, that that's consistent throughout the entirety of the film is that in almost every shot, the people in the shot are not on the same level as each other. That's true. Yeah. 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 Thinking about, about it now. Yeah. So this is another film like Pariah that I feel deals in contradictions, but almost coincidences more than contradictions. Mm. Um, and is a really like human, really reflective film. And I didn't think about this until afterwards, but I saw um, a review on Letterboxd that said it said it is a subtle entry into magical realism. Yes. And I was like, oh, yeah. it is. And that's why I love it because I love magical realism and you yeah, love yeah. magical realism. You love Life of Pi. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it does it really well, but in a really grounded, realistic way. Yeah. While still having these like slight moments of whimsy. I've seen it compared to Amelie as well, but yeah. almost like Amelie for cynics. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Amelie for those of us that are that that we we're tired of the whimsy. Mm-hmm. And we still want that, you know, that happenstance, that coincidence, because that happens in life. Mm-hmm. But not from such a like candy coated perspective. Other interesting thing is Roger Ebert, I guess, was a big fan of all three of these movies. Mm-hmm. And he said this one was an anti-romance. White is an anti-comedy and blue is an anti-tragedy. Yeah. So it plays within those genres and then subverts them. Mm-hmm. What was this one again? Anti-romance. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And and I really agree with those three things, but not in the way you would think. Not to say anti-comedy as in it's not funny or anti-tragedy in and it's not tragic, but as in taking the expectations of those genres and then grounding them in something less genre based and refusing to play into the genre tropes yeah while still being within that realm like there are some elements of romance in this there are some elements of comedy in white and there are some elements of tragedy in blue but they the films refuse to be contained by the trappings of genre yeah really cool yeah i really love that when uh, you're talking about the being it being shot in levels and kind of showing people above and below, something that really stuck out for me from a visual standpoint throughout this film were two camera techniques that I thought were amazing. Mm. So there was a lot of really long, swooping, long, long takes where we kind of go from street level up to mm. uh, upper level building, mm-hmm. and then we go like through the window into the apartment. And it's it's gorgeous, like it's just flows and it, and it's amazing. But the other one that was so arresting and jarring was they do very short swooping shots as well that are like almost zoomed or like sped up. Yeah, it's it's it seems like a very unnatural way for the camera to 
to work because mm-hmm. you don't see it in films very much. And and it doesn't fit tonally with what's been established. No. Like there's a scene where we go from like a balcony down to the main floor and we just, yeah. <laughs> it just happens so quickly that you're kind of like, whoa. <laughs> Which again, this film is dealing in contrasts, right? Yeah. So cool. I uh, After seeing these movies, I'm really compelled to go check out some of Kieslowski's other work. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has some films that I didn't realize. I, I didn't know that all of these films were made by the same person. There was, yeah, I had always wanted to see these movies. I want to see his film, The Double Life of Veronique, which is like a queer film. Um, it has I think it's called a sh- The Short Act of Killing or The Act of Killing or something. And like, I knew of all of these films. I didn't realize they were all made by the same person. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, we got another Bergman on our hands where we're like, how have we not seen this person's films earlier? Mm-hmm. And now we have all of this stuff to discover, which is pretty cool. Yeah. This was another film this week that, um, I mean, we only saw it as of this recording. We only saw it last night, but it's just kind of, it keeps coming back to me in waves. Mm-hmm. And I really, really loved it. And yeah, to repeat myself, what a treat that, the last one in the trilogy is so great. And such a, I mean, because we felt that way about Clerks 3 too, but this is so different in that blue, white, and red are just, they are their own films. Yeah, that's, it's... It's a trilogy only in thematics and concept. Mm-hmm. Right? Conceptually a trilogy, more akin to like Lars von Trier's, um, can't remember what he calls it, but like, sadness trilogy or whatever yeah um where like the films themselves are independent of each other but they're conceptually linked so these work so well independently but they also do work really well to consider as as conceptual pieces Mm -hmm. that are linked together um and and this film is a really nice bow tie to that and i'm really glad and thankful to to metro cinema for having them but also having them spaced apart because yeah. I know like a lot of theaters around the world are playing these right now because there's a 4K restoration, but I've seen some stuff online of like all three being played in one day or like all three being played in one week. It's too much. And I really liked that space to like breathe between the three because they are their own films. Mm-hmm. Whereas watching Clerks 1, Clerks 2, Clerks 3 within a week was fun. Yeah. Because they all, that that's character stories that are continuing through three movies. Mm-hmm. These are not. And that's where I'm just going to, take a quick moment to just gush about Metro cinema a little bit where I, I feel like the, the curation, the, the curation that's happening there right now is just very thoughtful and very smart and considerate of its moviegoers that are coming to the theater and what they would like and how they should program things. And I, I agree. I think in the case of these three films, spacing them out was so thoughtful and so smart and, yeah, it really allows for the appreciation that each film deserves. Because I feel like if you're just mainlining all three in one day, it, I think it would be really easy to, I think it'd be really easy to forget about blue by the time you got to red. Mm-hmm. But being able to have a week or a couple weeks in between blue and red to, you know, think about, reflect, go back to. Yeah. Well, and that's, Similar but different to the experience of going to Clerks 3. And, you know, other than the one person who asked you how to use the um, footrest, footrest, we didn't talk to anybody. We didn't learn anybody's names, but there was a camaraderie in there. With blue, white, and red, 
so many of the people who came to those movies, I'm sure, were the same people. And mm -hmm. we were, you know, weeks away from one another, all re-entering the space together. And these movies, not always at Metro is it a quiet audience. Mm -hmm. All three of these films, some of the most respectful and, like, engaged, like, all three of them, I felt like the whole audience was leaning in together. Mm -hmm. And what a cool thing to like not even know one another and yet all be returning to the same space to see this film and then this film and then this film. Because I, I'm going to guess that about 80% of the audience was the same in all three films. Yeah. I don't know, but yeah. I'm, I'm going to guess. And we kind of looked over and we're like, this feels busier than the last two films that we went to. But I have also, this was a Saturday night. Yeah. And Red, I think, is well known to be like the most popular of the three. The, I think it's the highest rated so, of the three, yeah. Yeah, there's probably some people who just came to see Red or some people who just couldn't see Blue and White and maybe watch them at home because they are on Criterion Channel mm -hmm. then came to the theater to see this. But I, I guarantee you there's at least a handful of people who, like us, went and saw Blue, White, and Red at Metro. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we talk about them all the time and they are not a sponsor, but we would happily accept them to be. <laughs> <laughs> really appreciate what they're doing yeah how did uh three colors red make you feel it made me feel totally enthralled um and just made me excited and more curious about delving into the films of uh i i can't pronounce the director's name what is it <laughs> christoph kieslowski yeah I just Kieslowski. uh just delving deeper into into his work how about you how make you feel just made me feel deeply reflective yeah. I love that. I agree with that too. I want to ask you, how do you feel about the Three Colors trilogy as a whole now that we've seen all three of them? Good. Nice. <laughs> I really, 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 really liked them. And I I like what this filmmaker was doing in terms of conceptual work, mm -hmm. which makes me really intrigued to go and look at his other stuff. He's an auteur. Yeah, yeah. But I, I'm into it. You? Yeah. Um, it. I'm such a sucker for just like artists doing their own thing. Like the fact that, like we were saying, this is a trilogy, but all three films are independent of each other and are telling different stories in different ways or subverting uh, genres in their own ways. Um, I think that's so cool. And uh, I'm, uh, yeah, now I'm a fan. And yeah, just totally ready to delve even deeper into the works of Krislavsky. No, Kieslowski. Kieslowski. I'll get it one day. <laughs> uh, yeah, great trilogy. Great set of films. Loved them. It's time. It is time. Do, 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 do. Oh, wow. Yeah. We've never done that before. <laughs> it's a little bit of a new, newfangled thing there. Fanfare. Let's name some bad dads and rad dads of the week. Okay. Uh, who's your bad dad of the week? My bad dad of the week is Debbie Jelinski, uh, yeah. played by Joan Cusack. Let's just get real here. Yeah. She's a nanny. <laughs> She's in charge of children. She ain't doing a good job of it. <laughs> she ships the kids off so she can kill their uncle. <laughs> like, it's not, not great. She just also just seems completely uninterested in forming any real human bonds with anyone. And I don't want that person as a nanny or a dad. <laughs> She's um, a nanny and a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> Debbie Jelinski. <laughs> yeah, I just, I don't got much else to say about her, but uh, 
I, don't, I think she's a pretty bad dad. Yeah. Who'd you pick? No, I also picked Debbie. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Easy. Yeah. There were, um, we talked about some other choices, but we just felt they would be too spoilery. So we left them off the table. But uh, yeah, Debbie Jelinski, she is fun to watch, but she would be one bad dad. Yeah. So Debbie Jelinski? Kick rocks. Get out of here. Stinker. Rad dad. Who's yours? Big Dante. Oh. From Clerks 3. Um, I picked Dante because he's the support. He's supportive and loving of his friend. Mm-hmm. Um, who's Randall. And, you know, he's definitely not perfect in expressing his feelings throughout the film. We don't need perfection in a rad dad. No, but he hopes to gain understanding in his own way. Mm-hmm. And with the people, with the people he's surrounded by. Yeah. And I love that. I love that. He's just not, he's not this perfect person that knows how to say the right thing at the right time, but he's still thoughtful about the people around him and how he fits into their lives and how he wants to fit. Into he their is lives. Mr. Dante. He is Mr. Dante. Oh man. There was a, there's no, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. call me Steve. <laughs> 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 they don't quite go there with it, but <laughs> what's uh who's your rad dad? I, I'm already convinced by what you've said, but I but I'll talk about who I did nominate. So I did nominate Valentine. Mm. Um so Irene Jacob as uh Valentine because I found her to be a genuinely caring person, like so caring that she couldn't even fathom how acts of service to fellow living creatures would be for her own benefit and not for theirs. Mm-hmm. And she just sees the humanity and the value in everyone. But I do see a bit of a naivety mm-hmm. and and perhaps a acts of service to others to the point of like not serving herself that I think allows me to gravitate to Dante as the rad dad of the week. I just didn't even think of it. Okay, cool. All right. So Dante, a.k.a. Mr. Dante. A.k.a. Brian O'Halloran. From Clerks 3. Be our, our dad. dad. You might be happy to know that I have a daddy. Oh, really? Of the week. Who is it? Valentine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Unsurprising. I mean, honestly, I daddy Jeff Anderson. <laughs> or Jason Muse. Holy moly. Um, I found Valentine very babely, but also I, I like all of the points that you made about her for Rad Dad of the Week. So I think that that also just helps the whole daddy of it all. Yeah, I mean, she's definitely a daddy. I think there's a lot of daddies in here. I, I yeah, but all right, Valentine. We wow. All right, babe. Before we get out of here, why don't you hit us with rad wreck of the week? So uh, today, when this airs, not today when we're recording, but when this airs, when you you may or may not be listening, is Truth and Reconciliation Day, um, and I think that it's important to acknowledge some of the work being done creatively by indigenous folks in and around us. Um, So I just want to encourage you, if you're listening to this, to take some time to engage with some work by an indigenous creator, an indigenous writer in whatever format you, you like to engage in. Um, I do have a list I've made that I, you know, I'm happy to share if if anyone wants to reach out to us um, that I give to my students of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, podcasts, TV shows, and movies made by Indigenous, and music made by Indigenous creators that I've engaged with. So 
I can speak a little bit to to perhaps some of the triggers in it, um, but also like what I see as um, things that I've learned from it. Some of the things that I want to maybe encourage you who are listening to engage with, we've seen a number of films made by Indigenous women in the last year and a bit that we really enjoyed. So Rosie is playing at Edmonton International Film Festival. It was their opening night film. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. I believe it's playing again. Yeah, I think it is playing on their on the last day of life. So that'll be sa- on Saturday. Um, October 1st. October 1st, I think. Um, also, Beans is a film that we didn't get a chance to talk about on the show because we saw it before we started this thing. That is actually one of my favorite films I've seen um, from a local or like a more local filmmaker in mm-hmm. recent memory. Really liked that one. We have talked about Slashback and Run, Woman, Run. Both really, really wonderful films. Slashback, if you want a little bit of a like entry into October with some fun, the thing adjacent, but also with like a group of kids, highly recommend. In terms of TV, uh, if you're in Canada and you have Disney+, Plus, they have started airing the second season of Reservation Dogs weekly. We really like that show. We're into watching the second season. We've seen the first season. And although not um, right near us, out in Alaska, there's a musician named Quinn Christofferson who just released a new album that you and I are listening to on repeat. So good. Can't get enough of it. Um, Quinn Christofferson, I think the, al- the album is called Write Your Name in Pink. I believe. I believe. Correct. Yep. Um, really beautiful album artwork too. The The, the album is um, really, really strong, really lovely. I, I really like Quinn Christofferson's work before the album came out and I was highly anticipating this. Um, he was originally on the tour, he, or he is, he was on the Wild Hearts tour that we went to mm. in Toronto, but just wasn't playing the Toronto shows, which was a real sadness for me. Um, but his work is really great. In terms of podcasts and podcasts that I've listened to recently, um, Finding Cleo as uh, a CBC podcast and I, and Cooper Island as well, um, both really hard to listen to, mm-hmm. but I think valuable. So that's something that I would just recommend, particularly if you're a white person and you have a history of settler colonialism in your family. Truth and Reconciliation Day for me is about um, us doing the work of listening and reflecting and thinking about the part we play in Truth and Reconciliation. And one way to do that, I think, is to engage with Indigenous voices and, and then reflect on you know what you've heard. Um, also read the article that we spoke about earlier. We'll put it in the show notes. And, uh, I just, it's, it's an ask I would have that you engage with at least one thing by an indigenous creator this week and and spend some time reflecting even better if you can, you know, do that with somebody else and then reflect together. But that's, yeah, that's my rad wreck of the week. Um, but more of a, an ask Mm -hmm. than a rad wreck. And we'll be doing the same from where we're at. And spend some time actually taking seriously what Truth and Reconciliation Day is about. Yeah. Love that. Even if you're not here in Canada. Absolutely. That's it. Yeah. Thank you all for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. And until then, you can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Maybe uh, let us know uh, what you did to reflect on Truth and Reconciliation Day or share any great indigenous content with us that maybe we should check out. Mm-hmm. You can also find us on Twitter at bad dad, rad dad. You can get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual letterboxd accounts. Links to those are in the show notes. 
And we would absolutely love you forever if you could drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. That's going to do it for these two stinkies this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot and my dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.